I love that song, Ancient Words. We've been singing that song for 12 years. It's an old song. Um, yeah, don't you? I mean, that's one reason I come to church. I want God to change me. I want to be changed. Don't you want to be changed? Don't you want to be more like Christ every single day? Don't you want to be more like Christ? I mean, isn't that the heartbeat of every true born again believer? I want to be more like Christ. So, the ancient words. God has given us this great gift to come and to hear what He has said to us, to challenge us and exhort us to be His people on this planet for the few moments that we have. For these very few moments as compared to eternity that we have on this earth. I want to begin tonight with a, a quote that some of you that have been around for a while, you've heard me uh, use it several times. I, it, it comes up in my preaching at least two or three times a year. Uh, it's a quote that God used to fundamentally change the way I saw God, the way I thought about God, so consequently, it had a huge impact on me, and consequently, it ends up in a lot of different sermons. So, but uh, yeah, about 18 months after reading this quote for the first time, I still remember where I was when I read it. I know exactly where I was, and about 18 months afterward, I was in seminary. I, uh, some people think there's a connection there, but I, I'm not exactly sure about that, but uh, let me share this quote with you. I bet you can guess who it's from. Chinela, who do you think it's from? You don't know? John Piper, of course. John Piper is an American preacher um, and uh, author, theologian, a great gift to the contemporary church. But John Piper says this, In creation, God went public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. There is something about the fullness of God's joy that inclines it to overflow. This is what we're talking about tonight. There's something about the born-again life that overflows. And if your great love for God is not overflowing in your life, if it's not spilling out into your life as we talked about last week, um, you have every reason to question where you are with God. If we're in relationship with Jesus, it will overflow. And we're seeing this principle in God, this overflow principle in God. It's true in our lives too. You heard it in the text. Abraham's faith was lived out. If your faith is real, it will be lived out. Christianity is not something we simply talk about. It's something that we live. So let me continue the quote with John Piper. I'll pick up where I left off. There's something about the fullness of God's joy that inclines it to overflow. There's an expansive quality to His joy. It wants to share itself. So the eternal happiness of the triune God spilled over in the work of creation and redemption. Don't we see it in the created order? Don't we see the infinite exuberance of God in the created order? If you have eyes to see, it's completely obvious. Then the, the last sentence here. All of God's works are simply the overflow of His infinite exuberance for His own excellence. I hope that you see God like this. If you don't see God like this, you're not seeing God biblically. He's an infinitely happy God. I fear that many in the church that I've encountered in my Christianity, they don't know that God is an infinitely happy God. Infinitely happy. Infinite exuberance. He's brimming with joy. This is who Jesus Christ is. And creation is simply the overflow of that joy. 
Redemption is simply the overflow of the joy that resides in God. I looked up this phrase, infinite exuberance. The best I could come up with was joyously unrestrained. This is God. He is joyously unrestrained. He's giving eternal life to His people who don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We know we don't deserve it. We know what we deserve. We deserve to be in hell yesterday. But this God of life is giving away the life of God. And it's an awesome thing. <laughs> I say it all the time. I don't know why there's not 10,000 people in this room wanting to hear about Jesus. Well, I understand it theologically. Men hate the truth. Men hate it by nature. I get that theologically. So, this infinite joy of Jesus Christ. You guys know what Hebrews 12.2 says. For the joy set before Him, what? He endured what? His joy is so big, the cross was nothing in one sense as compared to His joy. God's infinite exuberance has swallowed up the abasement of the Incarnation. It swallowed up His shame and suffering on the cross. It swallowed up the degradation of holy God becoming sin. That's some insight into the infinite joy residing in God and spills out on His people. And will spill out on His people for a billion eternities. So I want you to see this overflow principle in God. The same is true as I've already noted. It's true for the Christian. If you're in relationship with Jesus, there'll be this overflow thing happening. It'll spill out on your spouse. It'll spill out on your kids. It'll spill out on your co-workers. It'll spill out on your boss. It'll spill out in your neighborhood. Obviously, it'll spill out in the church. Your grateful love for Jesus will be obvious to everyone in your orbit. No one will be, no one will be confused about who you belong to. Right? Nobody's confused about who you belong to. Nobody's confused about who you love. There's this overflow thing happening. Yeah, try and stop me from talking about Jesus Christ. Try and stop me. He's not only my Creator, He's my Redeemer. Try and stop me from talking about Him and making much of Him in the world. Last week we talked about that great song that I love anyway, Sarah Groves, an American contemporary artist. She sings, something's changed in me. Does anybody remember the, the, you know, the, the, the phrase I was really making much of last week? She says, something's changed inside me. And what happened? It, all, it broke open and it all spilled out. I mean, this is Christianity. If the new birth has, a, has happened, it's going to spill out. And I love that song. Thank you, Bertha. Um... This overflow happens. It's a natural extension of the God-begotten life. It's what true conversion is all about. We talked about it last week. You must be a church member. Is that what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be a church member. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus, your religion... It's not going to do you any good. This is inferred. This is implied. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born again. To be born again is to know the living God. This is eternal life that they may know you. Jesus prayed to the Father. As I so often say, it's all about relationship. It's all about the relationship.
just as the eternal happiness of God overflows into creation and providence, our born-again nature overflows into the lives, into our lives. If our Christianity is authentic, if it's genuine, if it's real, it will be obvious to everyone in our orbit. So, as we mentioned last week, this is an important and timely message. There are many false gospels in the world. Um, it's, it's, you know, I was talking with someone this week. It's, it's always been true. Before, the, first, before the, the New Testament was completed in the first century, there were already false teachers, and they have only multiplied. There are many false gospels in the world. One of which that I grew up under was, well, as I shared last week, if you believe some facts about Jesus and you pray a magic prayer and you get baptized, you're a Christian. Well, you don't actually see this formula anywhere in the Bible. And there are many variations. You know, most denominations come up with some formula and then they'll promise you that you're right before God if you do the formula. Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be in relationship with my Father. It's never about religion in the Bible. It's always about relationship. Do you know God? Do you love God preeminently? It's always about this. It's always about this. And I want to say this. You've heard me say it before, but I want to say it again. What passes for Christianity in much of the world, in many places, is biblically unrecognizable. It's simply biblically unrecognizable. It's biblically unrecognizable in many, many, many places. And I'm talking about the whole spectrum. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, many strains of Protestantism. It's simply biblically unrecognizable. you got people playing church with God. God's not impressed with your denomination. God's not impressed with you playing church. He's not impressed. Will you repent of, his, of your sins and come to Jesus and walk with Him? Will you be His disciple? Salvation is discipleship. Discipleship is salvation. There's no dichotomy here. There is no dichotomy. So as we talked about last week, you come to James chapter 2, and God lovingly gives us a reality check. Do you have biblical faith or not? Or have you believed some lie that some preacher said or some denomination has uh, uh, put in your mind? Do you have real faith? Do you have saving faith? The kind of faith that God means. When He talks about believing, it's not simply mental assent. It's not that. It's believing in such a way that your life radically changes. What did Paul tell the Corinthians? The born again man is what? He's brand new. I'm not saying we're perfect. And sanctification is a long and uneven thing. But we have a new affection. That new affection is Jesus Christ. And we will not live small anymore. We will pursue Him. So God, here in James chapter 2, He's saying it as clearly as it can be said in human language. There is a kind of faith that does not save anyone. We talked a lot about it last week. And just by way of review, James chapter 1, verse 22, we talked about this word, this, this, this great verse. If you do not do the Word, God says you are what? You call yourself a Christian and you don't do the Word. You're not obedient. Again, I'm not talking about perfection. What does God say there in James 1, 22? He says you're deluded. 
If you simply hear the Word and don't do the Word, you're deluded. Now, what did we, what did we talk about last week? James 2, 14-17. God says those who merely talk... God says that kind of faith is what? What did He say last week? What did we, what did we, uh, what did we learn? God says it's useless. So I lovingly challenge you. Don't be simply or merely a Christian who hears and a Christian who talks. God's people act. It's the book that follows the Gospels. What is the book that follows the Gospels? Hearing? Talking? What is the book that follows the Gospel? Someone tell me. Acts! This is not a coincidence. This is not an accident. True believers act. They always act. It's always, it's always in their life. Church members don't act. Church members show up. They do some church. They live the rest of the week many times simply mindless about God. Uh, they go about their business. They do what they want to do. They, they're, they're pursuing their priorities uh, without really giving God a second thought. This is what church members do. Disciples act on the Word. You know, I get convicted. This is, this is one of the side benefits of my job. I study the Bible all the time and I'm always under conviction. <laughs> you know? And God's just, I feel His hands on me, man. I feel Him pressing down on me. He's going he's gonna to turn me into something that looks similar to Jesus at some point, right? He's going to bring us into conformity. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I shared that great paraphrase with you last week that the Message Bible, which is not the Bible, it's, it's a paraphrase. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of James 2.17 isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is... Anybody remember? God talk without God acts is what? It's a nonsense. Thank you, Bertha. It's nonsense. Much of what goes on in the name of Christendom today, it's nonsense. It doesn't have anything to do with this. People have edited this. They ignore this. They put this aside. They say, oh, I don't like that text. It'll upset some people. They edit God. Can you imagine the arrogance? Can you imagine the arrogance? I'm going to edit God. I know better than God. You know, that's the thing about this church is we're just, we don't edit God. It's just, it is the Bible. And as I said last week, if you don't like the Bible, you're not going to like it here. <laughs> if you like the Bible, uh, even the hard things, you know, God expects His people to trust Him with the hard things. You know what I mean? I get all kinds of questions. You can imagine as a pastor, people ask me all kinds of questions. And sometimes I have to say, I don't know because this is not an answer book. God's not trying to address all your questions. He's not trying to answer every question you can imagine. He's not trying to do that. What's God trying to do in the Word of God? He's merely revealing Himself. He's not... God's... You know, He's not... He's not being interrogated. He will not be interrogated. Sometimes we have good questions, but the Bible doesn't answer every question. God just says, this is who I am. This is what I do. Repent and believe. Or wrath will come to you. This is the message of Scripture. So very, very quickly, in clear language, last week God says three things about faith without works. Verse 1 uh, pardon me, verse 17, he says it's dead. Verse 19, he says it's akin to demon belief. Verse 
20, he says that it is useless. I told you last week, I really like preaching a text like this because it's so simple. A seven-year-old could do this. This is not hard, but you, you, Catholicism has taken this uh, text and turned it on its head and turned uh, salvation into works righteousness. You have to do works in Catholicism to be saved. Beloved, this is simply false. This is simply false. This is not rightly dividing the truth. So, last week we looked at a faith that does not save. This week we look at a faith that does. It's the faith of Abraham. Abraham is the illustration in this great text. And I won't reread it. You heard it read. But verse 21, just to begin, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Verse 22, you see that works was working with his, faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. We touched on this last week. I want to say, first of all, that this is not an ethnic illustration. We know that James is the, is, he's the first pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. And we know from James 1.1 that the, the people have been dispersed. We understand that the people have been dispersed in persecution. We get that. This is a, this is a letter to the, Jewish, the first Jewish church. But this is not an ethnic illustration. This is a spiritual illustration. It is not ethnic. This illustration here of Abraham and also Rahab is talking about it is a spiritual illustration. It's talking about the salvation of the Jew and the Gentile. Paul says in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, Abraham is the father of whom all who believe. This is why God uses Abraham as the illustration here. He's not simply the father of the Jews. He's the father of every born-again believer. According to Scripture. And let me just stop. We, we hit a big word there. Verse 21, justify. I just want to make sure you understand what the word means because we're going to be, I'm going to be throwing this phrase out. And sometimes I assume too much. Sometimes I assume you guys know all of these words. Some of you may, probably do. Some of you may not. But justified is a legal term. It's, it's simply where God declares one of His people righteous through faith. It's when faith is exercised, we are justified, we are made right with God, we are just before God in Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Right? The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So we are in right standing before God, we are justified before God because we stand in Jesus. And His righteousness is imputed to us. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul says that a man is justified by faith alone. But here in James, chapter 2, James says Abraham is justified by his works and not by faith alone. And what I love about these two illustrations is Abraham is the, it's the same illustration. It's the exact same illustration. It's Abraham going up Mount Moriah with Isaac. So, the question always arises here. Is Paul and James, are they in contradiction? Is this a contradiction between Paul and James? 
Obviously not. This is tantamount to saying that God is contradicting Himself. With the, the, the view that this church has is that God has given us this Word. It is His Word. It is an errant in the original autographs. It is God's Word. You know, I have a sermon on this. If you have a hard time believing the Bible is God's Word, I have a sermon about that. Uh, come talk to me and I'll tell you how to go and get that sermon. It is God's Word. There is no contradiction here. There is no contradiction here. James elucidates Paul, and Paul elucidates James. You guys know what the word elucidate means. It means to clarify or illuminate or make an explanation of. Regarding true, biblical, God-given, saving, justifying faith, Paul perfectly elucidates James, and James perfectly elucidates Paul. American pastor, theologian, and teacher John MacArthur says it like this. Listen to me. I just want to read a short quote to you. James and Paul are not standing face to face in confrontation, but are standing back to back fighting different enemies. Paul is fighting those who want a salvation to be earned by works. That's what Paul is addressing in Romans. The Jews wanted to earn it. You have to be circumcised. You have to do the law. You have to go to the temple. Paul is saying, not anymore. That's the old covenant. Jesus has pushed all of that aside. Jesus is all you need. Don't you dare add anything to Jesus Christ. Don't you dare add anything to Jesus Christ. Paul says it over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. Don't you dare add anything to Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. And it's an insult to Him and it's blasphemy to say that you, have, you can add to your own salvation. That you can do meritorious works and earn the favor of God through your works. That you can earn salvation through your works. I know some denominations preach this. It's just utterly false. It is just utterly false. So, Paul is fighting those who want a salvation to be earned by works. It's false. MacArthur continues, James is fighting those who want a salvation that never brings a change in the life. This is what James is talking about. He's talking about the epidemic in the 21st century where people say they're Christians and you can't tell at all. In fact, you're pretty sure they're a pagan the way they talk, the way they live, the places they go, the things they look at on the internet. How could they be a Christian, right? This is what James is addressing. This cheap grace syndrome of, yeah, I prayed the prayer. I'm in. And presume on God for the rest of my life. I presume on the grace of God for the rest of my life. Some ignorant theologian told me if I just prayed the prayer and if I just did the ordinance, I'm in. And I'll sin with impunity in the world. I'm in. I've got grace. Beloved, this is simply false. I think anybody, any right-thinking person understands that this is, a, this is a perversion of the New Testament. So we see both of these errors. We see the error that Paul was combating. Uh, we see it in the modern church. And we see the error that James is combating. They are both prevalent in this day and age. So Abraham is not only the spiritual father of all who believe, he, his life of faith illustrates the beautiful balance between faith and works. 
that is fleshed out in every true believer's life. How was Abraham justified before God? Genesis 15.6 Abraham what? He went to church. And you, you understand when I say this. I want you to come to church. You should come to church. We're commanded to gather together as God's people. You know, you can't live a holy life as a Lone Ranger Christian. You simply won't live a holy life as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. I know that many people try to do this, but it's impossible. It doesn't work. It's, it, does, it simply doesn't work. You know, you're, you're supposed to be in the body because you bring a gift to the body and you're supposed to help this body for however long you're here. You're supposed to be uh, uh, in the body and serving the body. It's what real Christians do. We're, we're not simply in the body. We serve the body. This is what real Christians do. But Abraham believed, and you heard Blessing read it, it was reckoned to him, verse 23, as righteousness. It's a, an accounting term. God just imputes righteousness to those who possess and exercise true faith. God just imputes the righteousness of His Son to every true believer. Abraham believed the Word of God. He trusted in the promises of God. He put his faith in God and he was justified by God. Done deal. It's a done deal. And it can never be changed. Another error in the modern church that you can lose your salvation. It's false. It's simply false. If God has born you again, <laughs> if He's done this supernatural work in your life, how could you ever be unborn again? You say, well, Jim, I knew a guy once and, and he, made a, he, was a real, he looked like a real guy and then he, does, he, he left the church. Well, he was a tear. He was never truly part of the church. He was never truly a disciple of Jesus. It was a charade. It was a sham. I know a pastor like that. I know a pastor who left the ministry. It was all a sham. Every bit of it was a sham. I know that may be shocking to some of you, but if you've been in the ministry as long as I have, you realize these things happen all the time. What I hope I can do this week and last week and this week is if, if you've sat under bad teaching, hopefully we can begin the process of getting some of that sorted out. So God imputes righteousness to His people the righteousness of Jesus. Romans 4.2 says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to what? Anybody know? Boast about. What do you have to boast about? You call yourself a Christian? What do you have to boast about? What does God's Word say? Nothing. God did it. God did it. That's one reason you can't lose it, because God did it. Now, if you did it, you can lose it, and you will lose it. But if God did it, if it's the sovereign grace and mercy of God, if God did it, He will complete the good work He's begun. He will bring you to complete and total conformity in Jesus as you step in front of Jesus. For when we see Him, we will be like Him. And between now and that time, it's just sanctification, right? It's just 
God is bringing us into holiness and sanctification. We understand Ephesians 2, faith is a gift of God. We understand 2 Timothy 2, repentance is a gift of God. If you really believe, if you've been converted, it's God. You don't have anything to boast about, beloved, and neither do I. You weren't smart enough to figure it out. God has set His heart on you and God has saved you. It's an awesome thing. Biblical Christianity rightly understood. The Word of God rightly divided. It's a worship-provoking thing. You cannot not worship. God has saved me. God has done that. God has done that. And the point that, that James is driving home in the text tonight is that Abraham believed in Genesis 15, but how do we know it's real faith? How do we know? What happens in Genesis 22? What happens? He obeys. Now we know Abraham wasn't a perfect man. <laughs> there are no perfect men or women in, in Scripture. But when the hard, the hard call came, Abraham obeyed. That's how we know Genesis 15 was genuine because of how Abraham reacted in Genesis 22. What is the Word of God with respect to faith? It will always be tested. God says, I'll always test your faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, I think. God always tests the faith of His people that you might know it is genuine. This is not for God's benefit. It's for your benefit. So when the test comes, Abraham holds fast. God brings this mysterious command to Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Now, I am positive Abraham doesn't understand the purpose in all of this. So, so Abraham uh, interrogates God about this. He questions God. Um, he asks God if God is sure he knows what he's doing. He, is that what happened? No, what happened? Abraham gets up early the next morning and he's off to Mount Moriah. He doesn't, again, understand fully what God is asking him to do, but he will obey fully, right? There are many times that God asks us to do things that we don't fully understand. But we just obey. If we know God has called us to it, we obey. And Abraham, up the mountain with the boy, you remember what he told his, uh, his servants? Remember what Abraham told his servants? He said, well, we're going to go up the mount. Anybody remember? It's a beautiful thing. And we'll be back. Because what does Hebrews 11 say about Abraham here? What does Hebrews 11 say? When God, when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, what, what does Hebrews 11 tell us? What was going on in Abraham's mind? He just what? Reckoned that God would raise him up. This is how much he believed God. This is how much he trusted God. This is how much he loved God. This is the kind of intimacy that he had with God. And every time you come in here, I am going to push you in the same direction. I want you to have this kind of love, this kind of relationship, and this kind of intimacy. And when God beats me up behind my desk all week, then I'm going to beat you up some. Okay? And God has got His hands on me and challenging me to go deeper. And I'm going to love you enough to challenge you to go deeper. Because at the end of the day, 
What's more precious than being in relationship with God? What's more precious? You tell me. Your career? I doubt it. Your, your family? No way. Your pile of money? I don't think so. Beloved, if you call yourself a Christian, you treasure Jesus above everything else and everyone else. It's just what happens in the believer's life. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. What, what accompanies the faith that justifies? What am I saying? What have I been saying for two weeks? Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is what? It's not alone. What, what happens? Works. It spills out. There's an overflow. Back to the original illustration, there's an overflow in our life. It spills out. So, the eternal life of the believer overflows into the temporal life of the believer. The spiritual life of the believer overflows into the physical life of the believer. The supernatural life of the believer overflows into the natural life of the believer. God means for Christianity to be seen. And how is it seen? When you obey Him. Something we touched on last week. People really should be asking you, why did you do that? Why are you living that way? Why do you go down to the church? Why do you refuse to do X, Y, Z? Why, why, why? What is the hope that you have within you that makes you live like you're an alien? You seem like an alien to me. You know, I talked a whole lot about Little Rock. I preached in Little Rock. And I got off on that Francis Chan thing. Some of you were around when we went through Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. I, never for, I think the best line in that book is, something's wrong when your life makes sense, someone tell me, to an unbeliever. Your life makes sense to an unbeliever? Oh, I'll go a step further than Francis Chan. Everything's wrong if your life makes sense to your colleagues at work. Your colleagues at work should say, What? You believe what? You can't do this because you love Jesus and you, you're, you're in obedience to Him? What are you talking about? You know, this is completely alien to most of the world. And you know, beloved, that's why you're still here. You're on this planet for that purpose. Yes, God gives us subordinate <laughs> pursuits and pleasures, but it's all under the umbrella of I'm a disciple. First, I'm a disciple. First, I am a disciple. So I want to ask you, is the life-changing reality of God's worth, God's love, God's power, is it on display in your life? Are people asking you, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, part of what happens in the lives of the men and women of Hebrews 11. We've talked about so many times. So how do we know Abraham was justified by faith in chapter 15? It's because he obeyed God in chapter 22 of Genesis. God-given faith will always be a God-tested faith. I've already made reference to that. Go read 1 Peter chapter 1. Why does God want you to know you're His? Why does God want to eliminate all doubt? Why, does God want you, why is He going to test your faith? Why does God want you to know that, that you are His? Why will He eliminate all doubt in your mind ultimately? I'm not saying that some Christians don't struggle at times about their assurance. I get that. I, I had such a time myself. But why does God want you to be sure that you're His? 
There's probably a number of ways to answer that question. But preeminently tonight, I would say, so you'll do His Word. If you're not sure you're His, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. You'll always have some excuse. There'll always be some rationalization in the back of your mind. God wants you to know that you are His adopted son or adopted daughter because He wants you to make much of Him in the world as you obey Him with glad, reckless joy. So what is Abraham believing? What's the key thing here? What is Abraham believing when he goes up the mountain? What was the promise? What was the promise that God gave to, to Abraham? He said that through Isaac, all the promises would come. So what is Abraham believing here? Ultimately, Abraham is believing in Messiah, right? Messiah will come through Isaac. I've told you many times, the the Old Testament saints looked forward to Jesus even as we look back to Jesus. Abraham probably couldn't have talked very in depth about Messiah, but within the promise that he had received from God is Messiah. Messiah will come through Isaac. Abraham is believing in Messiah. Abraham is believing in Jesus Christ. So Abraham boldly, fearlessly, daringly, and audaciously obeys God. When was the last time you obeyed God like that, by the way? Just... It was, I stake everything I have and all that I am on God because I believe God's a promise keeper. You know, by the time Abraham gets this command from God, he's been walking with God for about 40 years. So how does a man get up early in the morning to go sacrifice the most precious thing to him on the face of the planet, his son? How does he do it? He's seen God keep the promises before. God is a promise keeper. God says Messiah is coming through Isaac. Your, your, ancestors, your, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. So Abraham just said, well, okay, he's promised all that. I know he's a promise keeper. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. If he can give Sarah a child who has a dead womb, if he can put a, a baby in a dead womb, he can raise someone from the dead. This is the thinking of, of Abraham. It's the thinking of every born-again believer. I put no constraints on God. Amen? I put no constraints on God. God, you're asking me to do a hard thing. It looks impossible. I don't know how it could ever work. That doesn't matter. If God's called us to do it, we do it, right? With glad, reckless joy, we do it. Beloved, I'm trying to set some of you free here, okay? And some of you aren't free in Christ. You're still afraid. You're still intimidated. You're still anxious. You're still afraid. You know, you, you have ten things you're afraid of. Well, I promise you, if you'll look at Jesus Christ, you will not be afraid anymore. And the moment fear comes on you, what I'm saying to you is, you throw it off. Yes, fear comes on me in the flesh. Fear comes on me in the flesh. And I throw it off immediately. I will not entertain it. I will not entertain anxiety. I know it's not from my Father. I know where it's from. You've got to learn to throw it off. You can be fearless in your obedience because God's a promise keeper. Don't you love this text here? Abraham, the friend of God. <laughs> the friend of God. Isn't it amazing? Jesus, how do we get to be a friend of God? 
Anybody remember? Jesus tells us in John. I think it's John. Let's see if I've got my notes here. I don't know where it is now. It's somewhere in my notes. Oh, here it is. John 15, 14. Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I say. God saves us. He does that miracle in our heart. And we are born again. And yes, try and stop me from doing what my Creator and my Redeemer calls me to do. Try and stop me. You know, if you read the book, that's really the book. The people that know their God, Daniel 11.32, the people that do know their God, someone tell me, they shall be strong and they shall do exploits. <laughs> this is what Christians do. This is what Christians do. Quickly, I don't know how long I've preached. I probably am, am closing in on, on going a little long here. Um, so I'm going to edit myself here as, as I go down. Um, I do want to say the word justified here in verse 21 and verse 24 of James chapter 2, it carries two general meanings. One is to be declared righteous as Paul uses it in Romans 3 and 4. The other is to be demonstrate, to demonstrate as righteous. And this is how James is using it. Paul is saying that the believer is declared righteous and James is saying the believer demonstrates that righteousness through his works. I want to make sure that you hear me say that. Quickly, as we close this second illustration, who is it? It's a harlot. Couldn't God find a more dignified illustration than a prostitute? Well, certainly He could, but He apparently really loves this harlot. He loves this prostitute. Uh, she's not only mentioned here, who else... Who knows where else she's, she's mentioned? She's mentioned in Hebrews 11 by name, and she's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus by name. It makes the point, doesn't it? God is no respecter of persons. What's true for Abraham is true for Rahab. What's true for the man is true for the woman. What's true for the patriarch is true for the prostitute. What's true for the Jew is true for the Gentile. Amen? I love it that God puts her here. And we, every time I bring this metaphor up, we, we've seen it, uh, we saw it in the spring. You know you're a spiritual harlot. This is part of the, the, the imagery of, of the Bible. Unbelievers are spiritual harlots. We understand that. There's one time when we were a spiritual harlot. God has loved us. God has set His heart upon us. And God has saved us. So the reality check for you and for me Am I playing religion or are my faith, is my faith visible through my works? The born-again life overflows into the life. So, is your faith like Abraham's and Rahab's? Is it real? Is it visible? Is it overflowing? Is it spilling out? Are you proactively believing and acting on the promises of God? 
God is saying clearly to us in a way that cannot be misunderstood, there is a faith that does not save. It is the faith that never does anything. But there is a faith that saves. It's the faith that humbly and sometimes with great trembling obeys God. That is God's definition of faith. It's the kind of faith I'm exhorting you to tonight. Eugene Peterson is right. God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. So my challenge to you tonight is in all love, I say this to you, no more nonsense in your life, okay? No more nonsense in your life. When you walk out this door, you love Jesus supremely in every sphere of your life. You make much of Jesus in every sphere of your life. People are asking you in every sphere of your life, why do you live like an alien? Why are you so strange? Why You live like an exile. Why do you live this way? What is wrong with you? <laughs> Beloved, we should be getting this question sometimes. We should be getting this question. Verse 26, James chapter 2, For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Do you get the picture? Do you get the picture? For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. Do you get the picture? It's a corpse. Pseudo-Christian religion is a corpse. And it takes millions to hell. It is a corpse. But I exhort you to true Christianity. I exhort you to go with God. I exhort you to obey Him with glad, reckless joy. Beloved, it's part of the book if you do it. <laughs> you will have way more fun than if you don't. It's just, I got to tell you, it's just fun to walk with God. It's fun to walk with the giver of immortal gladness. And some of you aren't walking with Him because you think it's going to cost too much. It's not going to cost you anything. It's great gain to you. It's great gain to you to radically and extremely and provocatively walk with Jesus. It's great gain to you. He will fill your soul with a joy that you could never imagine as you simply release your life into His hands and walk with Him. Faith without works is dead. It is a corpse. But a life of faith that's spilling out, it's pure joy. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I sense that while this is a small group, I sense that there are some here um, who've never really opened their hands with You. They're still clutching to their own life, their own things, their own family, their own career. It's really more about them. It's all about them. And we know what You've called us to in the Word of God. It's not all about us. Praise God it's not about us. I'm just not that interesting. Praise God it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. This beautiful, infinite, glorious, magnificent, spectacular being. This awesome and beautiful God. Lord, I pray that if there are those here that have never opened their hands with You, I pray that, Lord, that they would do it tonight. They would give everything to You. It's Yours already. 
They just think they own it. Convict us, Lord, where we have rationalized. Lord, we know that the time is short. We know that we are vapors upon the earth. Lord, help us to understand that we have literally, as compared to eternity, we have moments. We have moments. We have moments. What will we do with these moments? Will we make much of Jesus or will we play games? I, Lord, I pray that in this place we would be a people who are seriously joyful and joyfully serious about all that You tell us. And that we would go out in the world and incarnate the truth. It is our evangelism. Works are the first part of evangelism. That the world would see our works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Help us, Father. We pray. We confess our sin. We confess our need. Help us, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.